Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Part of that is because of the lack of liquidity in real estate, but I'm willing to exchange the lack of liquidity in order to be able to sleep at night. You know, my whole portfolio is built around this thesis of what am I going to feel if things go wrong in the overall economy? And we felt that during 2020 and our portfolio outperformed and I was not surprised at all. You know, we braced for impact because that's what most investment firms are going to do. And we hoarded reserves, but when there wasn't any distress in the niches that we're focused on, we were like, oh, that's right. That's the whole point. I'm excited to announce a new edition of the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast called the Infielder Spotlight. You will see it every Wednesday starting May 18th in this feed with host Chad Ackerman. Chad, tell us about the new podcast. Thanks, Jim. So I had this idea in the shower because that's where all good ideas come to me that uh, I've always found podcasts interesting to listen to people's stories. And they were most intriguing when they talk about where they came from, what they went through, how they got into passive investing, because I found it very relatable typically to my own journey. And it gave me confidence because a lot of their stories sounded like my own. So I usually would learn something from their journeys and felt like I could be successful as well. Therefore, I thought it would be great to interview people from our community and ask them to share their stories also. That sounds fantastic, Chad. So everyone, look for Chad in the Infielder Spotlight podcast beginning Wednesday, May 18th. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at tribevest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. Hi, this is Scott Royal Smith from Royal Legal Solutions, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really pleased today to have Hunter Thompson with us. He's a full-time real estate investor. He's the author of Raising Capital for Real Estate and the founder of ASIM Capital. Since starting ASIM, Hunter has helped more than 400 investors and raised more than $50 million. He's also the host of Cashflow Connections, the real estate podcast, which has received over 1 million downloads, which is unbelievable, phenomenal. And 
He's the host of the Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference. And um, we went to that for the first time as left fielders this year. And that was fabulous. So thank you for that, Hunter. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Thanks again. Honored to be on. So the first thing we do here is just like to hear your journey. I know you're well known within our community, but we'd just like to hear how'd you get started into investing in real estate and then to start your own company. And can you talk a little bit about that journey? Sure. So, you know, I have a kind of interesting background. I actually played poker as a summer job when I was in college, kind of during the poker boom. And so for those that don't know, the poker boom kind of took place 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7 or so. And it was actually really pronounced in Tennessee because as some of you may know, someone from Tennessee ended up, I think it was a $17 tournament that they played in that won them a ticket to a $200 tournament that won them a ticket to the main event, which is a $10,000 tournament. And they won the main event and won a million dollars. And their real name was Chris Moneymaker. That was actually this person's name. And so this created something that in the poker community is called the poker boom, which is like a multi-billion dollar boom in the industry. And it created a very interesting bubble, all the makings of a bubble in the sense that you could make solid money if you took it seriously at all. And you can even make solid money if you didn't take it seriously. But I did take it seriously. I got a coach, started playing online, read all the books, and you know started clipping away 10K, 20K, 30K months and thought I was the smartest person in the world but I didn't know much about bubbles. So that bubble burst when the United States government made it illegal to play online for US players. And there was this whole kind of aftermath of that, but it was very good timing because what ended up happening was this is in 2007. So I took my money offline and then the real estate crash happened. And so there I was a college kid that wasn't really impacted by the real estate crash and always was willing to go left when people were looking right. And there was just this massive opportunity to focus on real estate. And, you know, the first deals I did were not, you know, the typical kind of deals that most people think about, but I took a very circuitous route. And now here we are today and I purchased probably around $150 million worth of real estate. That's amazing. I hadn't heard that story before, especially the poker part, but I want to dig in a little bit to, I remember 2007, 2008, I wasn't really into real estate. Then I had just been become an accidental landlord, but it was scary to go in and, and to buy stuff because everyone was like, this is the end. You know, markets will never go back up. And, you know, you said, I love how you said it, you go left when others go right. But how did you know what to do? How did you have the courage to take those steps? Well, I don't want to take full credit because First of all, everyone has their own strengths and weaknesses and natural inclinations. And I'm just very much inclined to go against what everyone's saying. And so it wasn't that I had a lot of knowledge of real estate. It was just that I had heard the mantra of buy when blood is in the streets. And it was very clear that blood was in the streets. And so thankfully, I didn't just go left when everyone was looking right. I actually started researching and eventually started looking at you know, real estate books. I moved to California, which the crash was very pronounced in California, as many of you know. Everyone had lost their shirt. But because of that, the people that were actually attending these networking events that had not lost their shirt were ended up being some very savvy, sophisticated investors that did not go the typical route of buying and fixing single family houses, but had purchased 20 million, $50 million pieces of properties. And so my first investments were based on that guidance where I wanted to, I don't want to deal with someone that stood to gain a hundred dollars a month for managing some single family house. No disrespect. I just didn't, that's not the model I was going to go for. I wanted to invest alongside people that stand to gain millions or tens of millions. And as soon as I uncovered the world of passive investing, 
I recognized it makes all the sense in the world. So the first deals I invested were syndications prior to the Jobs Act being allowed in the sense that I had to go to physical networking events to talk about deals. It was illegal to talk about real estate deals on the internet. And so that's how my career got started. Now, I will say real quick that 2008 was kind of the moment where I started paying attention. I was like, okay, stocks are interesting. I should be buying stocks. Maybe real estate's good too. And I didn't really recognize, I went all in on real estate for a very specific reason that I don't think anyone talks about, which was I was clued into this world of finance in 2008, 2009, I'm learning 2010, the European debt crisis really takes hold. And this for me was my moment where I was like, I have to get everything out of the stock market. I'll tell you specifically what happened. I was obsessed with the stock market, talking Warren Buffett, Charlie Mungle, you know, trying to read these people. And all of a sudden, after all that reading, all of that research, everyone on CNBC, which I was obsessed with at the time, was talking about the German bond yields being the single most important predictor of my whole portfolio. And I was like, how this hasn't come up? In all the research I had done, hey, keep your eyes on the German bond yields. How in the world, if I've been, quote, diversified, like most financial advisors tell you to be, how is it the case that this completely ridiculous, obscure economic data point is now the sole determiner of my life? And I had to get out of that casino and into predictable cash flow focused recession resistant assets. And that's what I spent the next decade doing. That makes complete sense. You know, I'm, I'm a former financial advisor and it used to drive me crazy that, you know, the example I always use is Apple, right? They could have the best year they've ever had, but if the market tanks because of the German bond or whatever it is, Apple's going down too, right? So I could be the best stock picker in the world, pick the best stocks and still lose. Where in real estate, it feels like the market swings aren't as instant. Maybe they are sometimes volatile, but they're not instantly volatile. And so that that makes me a little bit more comfortable. And that's part of the reason I exited the advising world, just to get out of the volatility, right? And knowing that cash flowing assets would always bring me cash, that might go up and down, but the cash is going to still be there. Totally. That's exactly right. And part of that is because of the lack of liquidity in real estate, but I'm willing to exchange the lack of liquidity in order to be able to sleep at night. You know, my whole portfolio is built around this thesis of what am I going to feel if things go wrong in the overall economy? And we felt that during 2020 and our portfolio outperformed. And I was not surprised at all. You know, we braced for impact because that's what most investment firms are going to do. And we hoarded reserves. But when there wasn't any distress in the niches that we're focused on, we were like, oh, that's right. That's the whole point. So it wasn't this massive buying opportunity. It was like, oh, and I'm not, you know, I don't mean to come off the wrong way, but this boring strategy that I've been talking about, the same three asset class for the last 10 years, there's a reason I've been talking about them and it was proven accurate in 2020. Absolutely. And what are those three asset classes? Typically mobile home parks, self-storage and multifamily apartments. And to various degrees, all of them perform quite well, far better than even I thought they would during 2020 for reasons we can talk about. But that was basically the three asset classes that I focused on. And that's the case always. Now, the percentage of those three, and prior to COVID, you could even include some grocer anchored shopping centers. The percentages may be changing based on changing market dynamics or just our natural deal flow. But that will probably be what we invest in for the next 20 years, because that's the whole point of the thesis. It's not really that interesting, but it works. Right. Boring is good. 
right? That's right. So we've kind of hopefully finally maybe come through COVID. That's a little bit in the rear view. I mean, it's still going to be around for a while. But how are you adjusting things or are you given, you know, all this talk about inflation, all this talk about global events? Is that changing anything that you're doing? Are you looking at things differently? Or are you just kind of full steam ahead? Because like if I had 10 years ago or five years ago when everyone said everything's a bubble, slow down. If I had kept my money on the sidelines, I would have missed out on a lot. And so now it seems like we're still at that place where are we in a bubble? Should I slow down or is it full steam ahead or something in the middle? Totally. So I've actually been asked this question a lot and I myself asked this question a lot. And so because of that, I'm actually doing a specific summit to answer this question. It's called the 100K to Invest Summit and it's a free summit. And it's basically to ask experts in their particular niches what they're going to be doing about this situation, which is a tremendous amount of liquidity. The United States government printed $6 trillion just in the last two years. I think somewhere between 40 and 60% of all the dollars that have ever been created were created in the last 24 months. And that's just the United States. The rest of the countries printed another $4 trillion. So you have this massive $10 trillion with a T dollar tsunami headed towards the financial sector. And every single one of those dollars is looking for favorable risk adjusted returns. And I personally think that United States real estate, but United States assets in general, but specifically real estate is going to be the main benefactor of that $10 trillion tsunami. Because what's going to happen is first, it's going to go into the bond market because it's the only place you can actually place trillions of dollars. And then eventually, as investors start to recover, they're going to be looking for better ways to not only get not negative returns, which is the bond market typically, but positive returns. And my view after conducting these interviews for the summit is that this is an incredible opportunity to borrow money and buy quality assets. And we can talk about why that is. But if you're interested in checking out the summit, it's 100 kinvestcom And I've interviewed some awesome people on it. So anyway, inflation is coming. The trillion dollar tsunami is coming. And if you think it's competitive now, if you think cap rates are low now, just wait for what is about to come. That's great. Everyone is asking this question. You're doing a summit to answer it. That's fantastic. What's the date of the summit? So it is a virtual summit. It's May 18th through the 20th. And yeah, like I said, 100K to invest.com. Awesome. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. I'm interested to to hear that. So, you know, I heard you talk on, on another podcast And this kind of is related to all the money in the system, right? You were talking about Phoenix and the huge rent increases you were seeing in that market. And the question is, is that sustainable? Like I'm I'm looking at a deal right now and, you know, if they have 15% rent increases booked in two years in a row, right? Year one and year two. Now, any other time, any other market, I would be like, done. I'm not even looking at that deal because that's ridiculous. But Phoenix has done it, right? So How does a passive investor look at a deal like that and decide, is this just crazy or is this the world we live in if you're living in Phoenix? Okay, so this is a really important point. So not only do we have this trillion dollar inflation causing tsunami coming, we also have this tsunami is about to crash on a wildly imbalanced market in terms of affordable housing in the United States. And then these specific markets where it's really, really pronounced, where in Phoenix, for example, which leads the country in rental growth. It leads the country in income growth. It leads the country in population growth. I mean, it's top five in every single fundamental metric that you'd use to justify why you like investing in multifamily. So I'm very, very bullish on Phoenix. And so when we started looking at Phoenix, 
uh, the previous year, I wish I'd started looking at them in 2010, but the, you know, the previous year at the time was May to May. So year over year growth in May was 15%. As we're conducting due diligence, we looked at it again from June to June. So June, 2021 to June, 2022, it was 20%. From July, to July, it was 25%. It kept moving up to 28% and then 32% year over year citywide. It's the fifth largest city in the country doing this kind of number. So as investors, we hear that and we go, well, that's a bubble that's going to pop. And I get that. We should all, anytime you hear something that's like wildly out of balance, that should probably be your natural gut instinct. But if you look into the data points of what drives this particular rental growth, it isn't like 2007 where some new ahistoric loan product came into existence, financed 40% of the economy, which was construction at the time, and create this massive disequilibrium. Those rental growth data figures are based on those non-volatile fundamentals, meaning things like population growth, rent growth, income growth, job growth. And it isn't the case that 300,000 people move to Phoenix and then three months later, they leave Phoenix because what's creating this is jobs. And this is the case of other markets as well. So when I look at a Phoenix deal, I don't want to be as concerned about, I'll put it this way, when we see 28% rental growth, something in our hearts as investors thinks, well, it's going to snap back and it's going to lose 28% the following year. That is just not historically accurate. Rental growth, for example, is usually somewhere around 10 times less volatile than valuations. And that makes sense because it's a multiple of income typically that we trade real estate on. So you don't typically see rental growth going negative. And that's really, really pronounced like once a generation type of thing. You could see that 28% figure go to 10% and 5%. And so when we're underwriting deals in Phoenix, once the value add plan is implemented, once the property is brought up to market rates, we're underwriting 5% for the remainder of the five-year hold. So to answer your question, is that conservative, aggressive? Like where does that stand? Well, inflation doesn't impact every market the same. You know, there is market-specific inflation as well. And if you have not only a massive amount of money printing, but in crazy supply and demand imbalance and massive job growth, you know, Phoenix is currently going along at 9%, not 7%. If you use the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, you're going to get about 9 or 10% inflation on a massive, massive city. So to use 5% is literally half the figure of what the government data is, which we all probably agree is understated. So I think that's very, very conservative. That's great. That's really interesting analysis. And then, you know, you talked about this tsunami, right? People are going to put money into the bonds and then going to come out and, and put it elsewhere. And that's going to uh, further compress cap rate. So as a passive investor, you know, you, you mentioned the three asset classes you're looking at, but how do I decide what am I going to invest in throughout 2022 and beyond? What are you looking at? Is it different markets? Is it uh, different niches within the asset classes? What are you looking at? So there's a couple things. So that was kind of our original thesis at ASIM, which is the name of my company, and to focus on those recession-resistant real estate assets. And I have, you know, just from networking, et cetera, we started to participate in other recession-resistant assets that aren't necessarily real estate. So we have ATM funds that we've done, Bitcoin mining fund that we recently relaunched. The Bitcoin mining fund isn't typically within our recession-resistant thesis, but it is a cash flow-focused, you know, high depreciation type of thing. In terms of other niches, I'll kind of talk about what I'm not as inclined towards, and we can talk about things that I more like. So I try to stay away from 
anything that's going to create lack of predictability for our investors. So I stayed away from land entitlement. I've stayed away from development. I think these things can be justified and can make sense on a risk-adjusted basis. But I just don't really think that taking on investor capital to say it's going to be somewhere between 12 months and 24 months when you receive your first check. We just haven't built a brand that attracts investors that are kind of comfortable with that. But there's other opportunities there as well. You know, senior living, for example, which is a really interesting one because a lot of people are very skeptical in the wake of COVID. You know, anything in the build to rent space is kind of interesting. Maybe it wouldn't be a fit for ASIM Capital, but there's just so much demand. The low income tax credit strategy, which is becoming more and more popular and for good reason. All of these are interesting. And, you know, as a passive investor myself, I might pursue some opportunities in those spaces, even if ASIM Capital doesn't go that direction. Hey, Leftfielders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. So your business with ASIM Capital is basically you're vetting sponsors in asset classes. That, that's your business, right? And then presenting these opportunities that you find best-in-class operators, best-in-class assets, and you provide those opportunities to your investors. So that's not unlike what a lot of passive investors do, right? We're looking for the best sponsors and best asset classes. So I'm really excited to dig in a little bit on how do you find those best-in-class operators And then secondarily, and we talk about this next, how do you choose, find, analyze new asset classes? So I think when I got into passive investing, I quickly, and I'm a little bit of a nerd, and one of my main mentors was Jeremy Roll. So if you know anything about him, like we're just super, super nerds. We're different people, but we're cut from the same cloth when it comes to due diligence. And I kind of uncovered that most passive investors, if given infinite time horizon and infinite budget, they would do a lot more due diligence than they currently do. It's just not viable if you're investing 50, 100,000, or even a quarter million dollars in a deal. So as an example, if you're investing $50,000 in a deal, you know, are you going to spend 100 hours on due diligence? Are you going to fly around and see the properties at multiple states? Are you going to speak with the sponsor across you know, 20 hours? Are you going to run criminal checks and background checks? Are you going to not to just talk to their investors, but their service providers, their CPAs, their attorneys? Are you going to pull title on the properties they claim to own? I mean, these are things that I think all those things I just rattled off, if a passive investor sat in silence for a year, they'd probably come up with that list themselves. But then what are they going to do? even if they knew exactly what to do, it's going to really impact their return meaningfully if they tried to do that for themselves. And so I saw an opportunity, especially in the wake of the Jobs Act, which allowed us to talk about real estate deals on the internet. I saw an opportunity to play that role of vetting sponsors in which I had invested in or planned to invest very significantly with. So that was really the founding of our firm. It was, hey, I'm a passive investor. I've been able to negotiate favorable terms from the sponsor from pulling investors together. And first, you know, my first investor was my mom, shout out. So that's how we started. And it grew from one investor to five to a hundred. And now we have hundreds and they rely to some degree on me going through that process and our team going through that whole process. Right. And so when you 
find a new sponsor. I mean, how many are you vetting? Because you explained, like you're flying out there, you're digging in deep. So you can't evaluate tens of sponsors a month, right? So how do you find out? Because we talk a lot about community. I'm, I'm, we talk about community and that's how I find sponsors, right? Someone in my community introduces me to somebody that they've invested with. And so that gives me a head start, right? A shortcut. I'm comfortable now at least doing my own due diligence. So is that how you do it? You hear about a sponsor, you meet someone and then you dive in? Yeah, to be honest, and you did have a question about kind of conducting due diligence on asset classes, and I'll definitely get to that in a second. So this is not a scalable part of our business. Our goal is not to scale these relationships, really the opposite. I want to find six to 10 groups that we can invest tens of millions of dollars with each. And so with that view and also the other pieces, you know, I'm personally one of, if not the largest investor in each of our offerings. And our compensation is paid by the sponsor and only paid if investors receive a return of capital on a pref. The reason I'm saying that is that this creates a structure where I'm not incentivized to do a bunch of random deals. I'm incentivized to go very deep on just a few relationships. And I really do suggest others think about this space the same way. So people ask to raise capital for them all the time. And I don't even read the emails. It doesn't matter because I don't really need more new friends. It's like a best friend. It's like, if someone was like, hey, like I'm interested in being your best friend, you're like, well, I already have one. So like I'm just going to move on. Maybe that person is going to be your best friend if you gave them the opportunity, but it's just you're going to move on. So we do have a very detailed process. We have seven stages that we take our sponsors through. But in order to get their foot in the door, you know, we're only looking for a very specific kind of sponsor. So, you know, a hundred million dollars under more, usually taking multiple assets full cycle in a various niche that we're interested in and bullish on and not too large for us to be, you know, given favorable economics for our deal. There's really not that many players in the space that meet all those criteria. And because of how we're positioned in the space, we're constantly hearing about the names that we should be introduced to. So it's not like we send a bunch of traffic to a form to fill out if you can work with us. It's like it'll happen organically or not at all. And that's totally fine because that's not our goal. I can walk you through that process, but that's the reality of the situation. I don't want people to think that if they go through this particular vetting process, we will work with them because it's just not the case. I love that. I love the approach. You know, kind of what I'm doing right now is a little bit scattershot. I'm investing in a ton of different sponsors at, at the minimums they'll allow me. And so in three to five years after I've had more deals go full cycle, then I'll start taking bigger bets on fewer sponsors. But you're already doing that. And so starting a relationship with ASIM Capital kind of get you into that system of what I'm trying to, to do on my own. It's just that, you know, you can do it kind of DIY or you can go to a company like ASIM Capital and maybe have a few deals there and you get some of that same thing. So I think that's fantastic. But now I'd like to dive into the asset classes because I know, you know, Bitcoin mining is new. I know you're into that. You know, our community is big on the ATMs. I, I know you're into that. Um, I'm super interested in senior housing and haven't been able to find a whole lot of quality syndicated opportunities because I like to be very passive. I don't want to invest directly in something. So I'd love to hear about how you find your new asset classes. So, you know, when I looked at some economic data before I even made one investment, I was just kind of trying to find a way to potentially give up some of the upside in exchange for predictability of outcome. So I saw what took place in like the hotel industry and hospitality in general. I saw what took place in anything related to travel in 2008 and 9 and 10. And I basically recognized I'm trying to avoid that at all costs, even if it means 3% on an IRR basis. And so in doing that, I kind of researched 
a couple of, you know, the theses of recession resistant real estate, particularly a no good example is the mobile home park business. The worse the economy does, the more demand there is for affordable housing. And so I went all in on that industry in 2012, 13, 14, the self-storage industry starting in 2013, and then apartments starting in 2014 or so. I basically paused on apartments because I thought the mobile home park and self-storage industry at the time were just so much more compelling. And then as cap rates continued to compress, I ended up turning up apartments starting in 2017. And so that's a good example. Like I was always bullish on all of those, but as cap rates change and the market changes, my dynamic of like the allocation of those asset classes changed. But when I do this, we have access as the industry becomes more institutional, we have access to data, like really compelling data, even with private deals. And so if you go to Green Street Advisors and you Google net operating income across the main asset classes in commercial real estate, you'll find probably out of all the calls I've made wrong in my life, which we can talk about some of those, by the way, uh, usually to do with economics, the thing I may be most proud of is that chart because it shows mobile home parks and self-storage blew everything out of the water in terms of NOI growth. And then multifamily apartments blew everything out of the water in terms of net return. And so NOI is obviously a little bit more predictable and less volatile and IRR is what most investors care about. And so that right there, I mean, I'm not understating it. I mean, that that is like one of my most proud moments in my career is having that foresight. And by the way, I didn't come up with any of this, right? This is just very fortunate timing in terms of who I met at the time, rubbing shoulders with some really high quality people when the market was decimated. I'm very fortunate in terms of how old I was. If I was three years older, I would have been flipping houses in California, making so much money. I couldn't even know what to do with it until smack in the face. Turns out you weren't right and blah, blah, blah. So I got to be humble about that because I was always interested in financial assets. If I had started my financial career in 2005, I don't know that I'd be on this interview right now. That's it, right? I mean, if I started as a stock market guy, and if I hadn't, I probably wouldn't have found passive investing in real estate you know, later in my career where I did. So it's really a function of where you are and what opportunities you can find and what you do with it. So I, th I think that's amazing. So I guess you kind of teed up the next question, which is impossible to answer, but hopefully you'll have one for me, is, you know, what's going to blow us out of the water over the next five or 10 years? And are you going to find the next mobile home? Because I don't know what's cratering right now that like, you know, self-storage was or multifamily. What's the next big thing? So I don't know the answer, but I do have a perspective that I want to share. And that's why I was excited to come on the show. So everyone is kind of asking when there's going to be a pullback. And I'm trying to share the message that it is happening now. This is the pullback. This is the back the truck up moment. And everyone's asking when prices are going to change. That's the wrong question. The question is, when is that back the truck up moment? And it is happening right now. If you think it's competitive now, if you think cap rates are low now, if you think oh my gosh, it, there's so many people in real estate. It's me and Jim and bigger pockets and all these people. You think there's a lot of podcasts. You think that there's a lot of discussion. You think that, oh my gosh, your cousin is in real estate now for the first time. Just wait because the data doesn't lie. When there is at record highs in cash sitting on the sidelines, that cash that has to get yield they're eventually going to recognize what we are recognizing, which is that United States real estate, particularly multifamily, which is infinitely scalable and you can place $100 million pretty quickly, that is the place to be. Imagine sitting in a 
a meeting with a bunch of bond traders and it's like, well, the Japanese bonds, it's only negative 1% and the European bonds is only negative half a percent. It's like, okay, like inflation and like what is going on? Well, they're going to figure this out. And they started, there already are, you know, you used to have no institutional participation in a $30 million multifamily purchase. Now, everybody that knows that's in these growth markets, all their competitors, who are they? Large pension funds, Goldman Sachs, people flying in from New York on private jets. And we still have a massive advantage because we don't have a board of advisors. It's all about speed of execution and predictability of outcome. And these massive firms that have to run it by 12 people before they get their underwriting accepted, the predictability of outcome, especially in a market like Phoenix, for example, if I say, if I'm the principal of a large sponsor in Phoenix and I say, look, I'm going to give you a million dollars of my money, non-refundable day one, it's my money. There's no board. I'm going to get this deal closed. Trust me. And by the way, this is the ninth deal we've closed in a row. I'm getting that deal before my guys in New York, even if my guys in New York are overbidding me. And that's what we're seeing happen in all these markets. So I'm very, very bullish about what's going on right now. And I want to make the message. It's not some like random new thing that's going to come up. It is the thing that we're focusing on right now, but maybe it's the case that cap rates never spat smack back. And the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, but then it shifts your mindset. And so that's where I currently am. You're thinking mobile homes, self-storage, multifamily are still, they, they still have long run ahead of them. Yes, yes. But I don't want the listeners to think that I'm this like perma bull because this is very, very specific to the sponsors that we work with and the strategies that they implement. You know, I just mentioned, oh, we're going to go non-refundable day one. Well, either you're completely insane or you have a tremendous market advantage. Maybe you know the asset intimately. Maybe you know the roofer. Maybe you know the electrician the electrician that put the assets in. Maybe you know the current status of the chiller. And maybe you've been uh, giving offers on this property for the last two years and it finally came on market for the first time. And you know more than anybody, especially someone in New York. So that's the type of relationships I'm trying to lever. Those ones that have a certifiable, verifiable market advantage that everyone else thinks those guys must be crazy to offer that much or to get that type of lead flow, et cetera, et cetera. There's a bunch of different ways to do it, but significant market advantage is what I'm looking for. Okay. Two things, I just, just so everyone's on the same page, can you explain what you mean by a million dollars non-refundable? And then also you mentioned strategies. Well, first I, I answer the non-refundable part and then I'll ask my question about strategies. Cool. So when projects are purchased, typically there's a non-refundable deposit or especially in competitive markets, there's a non-refundable deposit that represents a percentage of the purchase price. And what it means is that we're so confident we're going to close, we'll give you $200,000. And if in due diligence, 30, 60, 90 days, whatever it is, if during that process, we find out there's something we missed, you can keep the $200,000. So what this does is number one, the broker is going to be very interested in working with you because they're trying to get their fee for making the transaction complete. The seller, usually their main goal is to ensure that they can sell this property on time. So if this sponsor is saying, I'll give you a million dollars non-refundable day one, meaning I haven't technically entered the property, the due diligence process hasn't technically started yet. You get to keep the million. That guy's going to try to push the deal through no matter what. But People hear that and think, well, you would have to be crazy to actually want to do that. Maybe, or maybe the person that's willing to do that 
has such a knowledge of exactly how the plan's going to go, knows the market intimately, probably owns three properties within a five-mile radius of the subject property, same vintage, same size, same property management company that they may own. That predictability is so high, they're willing to put up the million dollars non-refundable day one. And that's just one of many examples of the kind of things that their competitors are probably going, those guys are idiots. And it's like, well, let's see how it plays out because maybe not. Right. That's great. That's great. So as far as strategies, when you're talking about multifamily, I'm seeing a lot that it's almost like people are flippers now, right? You hold it for two years, refi or sell and get out and and leave some skin on the bone for the next guy. That's kind of a a business model I've seen a lot. But what kind of strategies do you think will be fruitful going forward within the market that we have? So I think that late in the I don't know where we are in the cycle. That 2020 thing is kind of weird, obviously. But in the current state of the cycle, you got to be very careful about overpaying for potential, generally speaking, but specifically for value add. So what ends up happening when things are super competitive is that sometimes people will see a property and say, well, we can raise rents by 20% to bring it up to market rates. And at that point, we'd have blank cap rate. Or you could just buy a property that already is that cap rate. <laughs> so you got to be very cautious about like overpaying for value add. However, it's very attractive for buyers to do. The reason I'm saying this is very common for people to overpay for value add. So to your point, if we're buying a property that needs to be 60% of the units need to be renovated, 40% have already been renovated. It's a proven business plan. They're already getting pro forma rents, for example, and we're going to go in and renovate 60 units. It's a very good strategy to renovate not the entirety of the units, not 60%, but maybe 80% of that 60% to leave enough meat on the bone for the next buyer to come in because you can sell the dream of the potential for value add. I think that is still very much on the table. Another kind of side note to that, I was always very much staying away from class A anything because we try to be better investors every single year. But you know, I have found that I had some inconsistencies in my thinking regarding class A. And we saw this play out pretty pronounced in 2020, where if you're making $100,000 a year, the predictability of the payment stream of that rental income is very, very high. And so I have never invested in class A apartments. But as cap rates have compressed, there used to be like a 200 basis point difference between like class B and class A, where you could buy four caps versus six caps. Now it's like three and a half caps versus three caps. So it's only 50 basis points. So the argument for class A is really, really strong. And I think that more and more people are going to be interested in that. And this is a bit of a rant. The other side of that argument is that if I am correct, and this money printing is going to crash into United States real estate, it might also be interesting to look at higher cap rate asset classes such as senior living, where if everyone's looking for yield and every piece of real estate in multifamily is trading at like three cap or sub three cap, there's going to be a move to those, there's what the word, the chasing for yield. And it may work itself to those eight, nine, 10 cap rate assisted living places. And man, aren't you going to look smart if you buy a nine cap that turns into a five cap. And so we're participating in that space as well. That's great. So I want to circle back to kind of how ASIM operates. And, and you know, you're not a typical syndicator. And there's a few others like you where you vet the sponsors and you raise capital for those deals, various ac- asset classes, and for your handpicked sponsors, right? So as a passive investor, how do I vet you and analyze your deals? Because I'm probably talking to you. I'm not talking to the actual 
boots on the ground syndicator. I know you're involved in all of that, but as a passive, how do I how do I figure out is ASIM right for me? And then when a deal comes down, how do I make sure I'm getting all the right information because I'm dealing with you, not the person on the ground? Yeah. So, I mean, I spend a lot of my time focusing on the marketing side of things because that's a big part of what capital raising is all about is you have to know what you're doing. If you raise capital and you don't know what you're doing, you're going to have a bad time very, very quickly. But in terms of raising capital, like the skill set is based on marketing. So we are very conscious about who we want to cater to in our branding. And so we're looking for savvy, sophisticated investors, typically not making their first investment in real estate, but are usually making their 10th investment in real estate. And so that goal is from top to bottom in our branding. So the name of our company is ASIM Capital, short for Asymmetric Returns. The tagline is achieve asymmetric returns through recession-resistant real estate. And that tagline resonates with the people that we want to serve. Just for another version of that, if we said like how to make your first $3,000 flipping houses, that's going to cater to a different audience. So if that resonates with you, perhaps it is worth your time to kind of go down the ASIM capital rabbit hole. I really think people that have a platform such as yourself, the level of transparency is just so much higher. I'm really hesitant to work with someone that's not a really available in the public eye with a podcast, a website, et cetera. So if you're interested without taking any of my time, not that I don't want to talk to you, I just don't have time to go through a bunch of investor calls. I would go down the Hunter Thompson ASIM Capital rabbit hole. You know, we put out 400 podcasts. You can easily get a glimpse into my view of a lot of things. And then we also have a lot of very scalable ways to communicate. So, you know, webinars on our website, podcast interviews that we've done, and if you go through all of that and you're like, wow, this is a good fit, then we do schedule a call with our investors. And the reason I say that is that if you watch a one hour presentation about how we're thinking about the Bitcoin mining space, it will either turn you off or you'll be really, really interested. And it's just very difficult to get an hour and a half of my time. But with that, I can communicate to a lot of investors you know, at the same time in a scalable manner. So that's how we do it. You can get a lot out of just watching people think through things and my podcast listeners, for example, know things about me that some of my best friends don't know just because of the time they've been listening and thinking about st- similar things. Yeah, that's great. And one last question on this topic is, so let's say there's a syndicator that I know that you're working through. Why would I go to you rather than direct to them? Or does it matter? Is it the same? Do I get the same returns? Is there an advantage to going through you than direct? Yeah, good question. So I'm a registered representative under a broker dealer, which means that when my investors invest with a sponsor, they're investing directly with the sponsor. So investors, our investors get to rely on all our due diligence. They get access to everything that we do as we the build up to the thing. They get access to our webinars, et cetera. And when they fund, they fund directly to the sponsor they're investing with. And so there isn't really an additional fee associated with that. Sometimes there'll be an upfront fee that's like baked into the deal. So it doesn't matter if they go direct with us or someone else or the sponsor directly, but our comp is paid from the sponsor's pocket, which is a really compelling value add strategy, you know, as a business. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. So the last question I always ask is what's a great podcast that you listen to and you cannot say cash flow connections. That'll be in the show notes. I think it's a fantastic podcast, but you got to pick something other than your own. I'll give you one that is probably not talked about enough. Maybe you're familiar with it, but Man, first of all, macro trends on iTunes, some hedge fund managers that have IMF consultants, people that speak at the Fed, you know, really high level people. Another one for like the more entrepreneurial listeners, Alex Hermosi's podcast is very good and very dense. And I believe it's called The Game and Hermosi is spelled H-O-R-M-O-Z-I. 
Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And one more time, can you tell us how we can watch the summit that you're talking about? And then also, if people want to get in contact with you or ASIM Capital, how do they do that as well? Cool. So the summit, I'm so excited about it. Like it's pre-recorded sessions. We're going to make them live very quick. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait. It's like so many high level people. It's way crazy, especially because it's free. So it's 100 k to invest dot com and definitely get the VIP upgrade. You can attend the meetings live and it's all a bunch of cool stuff. As far as ASIM Capital investors, yeah, it's asymcapital.com. Awesome. I'll put that all in the show notes and thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll definitely be watching you as you keep going. Happy to do it. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thank you. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value-add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with acquiring quality multifamily assets, and offering value-add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. That was just phenomenal. I could talk to Hunter all day long. He's such a knowledgeable guy, and I got a bunch of good golden nuggets out of there. And, you know, I'm just so thankful he came on the podcast. You know, the, right out of the gates, you know, he goes left when others go right, but he does it with research and purpose, right? He's not just going to go the opposite way because he wants to be different. He's going the opposite way because he sees something. And so then he dives in and researches it. Hey, why is everyone going this way? Oh, well, maybe I'll go the other way because there's better opportunities there. So to do that with purpose, right? You're not just doing it. You're doing it with purpose. That's phenomenal. And he nailed it, too, with the, with the German bond example. You know, I, this is how kind of I think is, is that the market, the stock market, paper assets, it could be anything. It could be the German bond. It could be who knows what that's going to make the market tank. And it does not matter if you're a great stock picker. If the market crashes 30%, your stock's going down 20, 30, 40% with it, regardless of how well it's performed. And that was when I figured that out. That's when I said, see you later, right field. No more paper asset speculation for me. I'm going to be an investor. And to do that, you got to get into real assets, boost cash flow. And I just thought the German bond example was great, right? He didn't want the German bond to determine whether his assets are going up or down. So he got out of paper assets as well. And man, another golden nugget, the lack of liquidity is what helps him sleep at night. And how powerful is that? If you're someone who's in the market and you sold everything in March 2020, if you're in real assets, you didn't, you couldn't because it doesn't work that way. And so the lack of liquidity is what might have saved you. And for Hunter, the lack of liquidity is what makes him sleep at night because he can't make rash decisions. And I absolutely Love that. And then the other thing he was talking about, rent, it's less volatile than valuations. And that goes right back to what we were talking about with paper assets, right? The stock market can crash. Well, real estate doesn't crash as hard or as fast, I don't think. But even if it does, even if those valuations 
go way down, rents are not going to follow. As he said, rarely do they go negative, but even if they do, it's not going to be overnight because you have them all spread out over the year. So your rents can't go instantly down. So you have a lot more stability with these cash flowing assets. And then talking about best friend, right? If a new guy comes along and he wants to be your best friend, if you already have a best friend, there might not be a place for him. Well, that's how he feels about his sponsors. He finds quality sponsors, digs deep, goes way into them to make sure that they're the kind of sponsor he wants to invest with. And he doesn't have time to go vet a bunch more because he's already got that best friend sponsor and he's got a few in different asset classes. And so I really just like his approach. Left field investors were do-it-yourself community. We help each other find sponsors and deals and we help each other screen the sponsors and analyze the deals. But there's a few of these out here of people that vet the syndicators for you in a community like Hunter's. And he gave a lot of reasons why that's a powerful way to go and an interesting way to go. And I will never be all in with one syndicator or one syndicator aggregator, which is kind of how I think of Hunter. I'll never be all in with one of those. I'll always kind of have some other investments here and there. But I see now the value of hitching your train to somebody like Hunter or some of these others that are syndicator aggregators because they do a lot of the due diligence for you. And so investing in a few of their deals makes complete sense to me. So I'm definitely going to take another look at ASIM Capital and dig into some of their deals and see if I can find something I like because I really like Hunter. I liked his Intelligent Investors Conference. I'm excited for the summit and I'm definitely going to check out ASIM and dig in a little deeper there. So that's all we got for today in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.